I'm very worried that we have the conditions that lead and can lead to civil war and that we're headed toward conflicts and are in the midst of conflicts unlike any that we've seen since our own civil war. Welcome to Book Society, the podcast where we talk to authors about the books that they love to read and dive deep into the books that they've written. I'm your host, Lucas Cantor Santiago. Our guest today is Ellis Coase, and you guys are in for a real treat. Ellis Coase is a Chicago native. He has a master's in science, technology, and public policy from George Washington University. He was a columnist, editor, and national correspondent for the Chicago Sun-Times, past contributor and press critic for Time Magazine. He was the CEO of the Institute for Journalism Education. He is the chief writer on management and workplace issues for USA Today, another legendary publication, member of the editorial board of the Detroit Free Press. He's had fellowships at the Gannett Center for Media Studies at Columbia University, University of California, the National Research Council, the National Academy of Sciences, and on and on and on. You get the idea. He's gotten some really prestigious fellowships. He's a columnist for a little outfit known as Newsweek. He's the former chairman of the educational board for the New York Daily News, which I'm sure means that he comes up with all the clever headlines. Don't correct me if I'm wrong. He's the inaugural writer in residence for the ACLU, which is pretty amazing. He's made appearances on Dateline, ABC News, Good Morning America, anywhere else where important people are interviewed. He's the author of over a dozen books, and The Rage of the Privileged Class was a bestseller. And I'm Puerto Rican, and most importantly, I thought... You know the best Puerto Rican, Justice Sonia Sotomayor, and there's a great video of you in conversation with her. Yeah, no, she's a great friend and a great person. Well, welcome to the podcast where you're going to meet your second favorite Puerto Rican. Probably my third since <laughs> mi esposo Puerto Rican también. Okay. So probably my third favorite Puerto Rican. I'll take third place to Justice Sotomayor and your wife, not necessarily in that order. So Ellis Coast picked today how civil wars start and how to stop them. And How to Stop Them is sort of a subtitle, but the book is How Civil Wars Start and How to Stop Them by Barbara F. Walter, 2021 from Random House. And it is slightly terrifying, but Ellis Coase, welcome to the podcast. Why did you pick this book? I'm delighted to be here, Lucas, and thank you for your warm welcome. I think Barbara Walter's book really speaks to the moment. It speaks to where we are as an American society. I think that we as Americans tend to believe that what we have established here is permanent and resistant to all challenges that our democracy will stand forever. But I don't think it's written that any democracy, any government stands forever. And I think particularly now when we have dangerous movements afoot that directly threaten what we are as a democracy, it's useful to have someone like Barbara Walters who warns us how societies change and how they transition from democracies into what she calls anocracies, which is basically some combination of a democracy and an autocracy. And I think that she lends some historical weight, international weight to what is a huge domestic issue for us here in the United States. Yeah, the the book is, I mean, a little background on Barbara F. Walter, which she gives at the beginning of the book, which I think is important to just understand her points is that she is a political scientist who has for decades been studying how civil wars start. And the interested parties here are, there's a lot of academic interest and political science interest, but also the CIA has an interest in how civil wars start because 
you know, they assume that they're studying how they start in other countries. And only recently it has come to look like we may be further along down the um, several stages that they've established within we're comfortable with. Mm -hmm. Are you worried that the U.S. is headed for a civil war? That's a complicated question. Let me let me just you know, answer it this way. I'm very worried that we have the conditions that lead and can lead to civil war and that we're headed toward conflicts and are in the midst of conflicts unlike any that we've seen since our own civil war in 1861. Whether it will take the shape of two warring sides shooting at each other in a more formal war or will it take some other shape, and I think it was more likely to take some other shape, I think we're at a very dangerous pass in society right now. One of the terrifying things about this book is the scale that political scientists have developed for the health of democracies. And just to explain it to the audience, it's a negative 10 to 10 scale, 10 being you have a democracy with flying cars and you basically Star Trek is, is a 10, right? And mm -hmm. negative 10 being North Korea. And governments, according to Walter's research, are relatively stable at the extremes where you know, there's probably not going to be a civil war in North Korea because it's a complete dictatorship. Exactly. And there probably won't be a civil war in Finland because it's got a very healthy democracy. The United States was on that list of very healthy democracies at a nine or a 10 until 2016. And the danger zone, according to Walter, is around when you drop down to about a six and you get into, as you said earlier, an anocracy, which is sort of almost democracy, but not quite. And the other point that she made is really relevant to what you're saying is that the danger time is either when you're moving towards a democracy or away from a democracy. Mm -hmm. And by most calculations, we seem to be moving away in many ways from a democracy. Yeah. Interestingly, I don't think anybody on either side of the uh, political divide in the United States, which is just, you know, right, left, Democrat, Republican for our international listeners, I don't think anybody would disagree with that. We just disagree on the cause of it and what moving away from democracy looks like. Yeah. And who's to blame? And who's to blame? Yeah. Well, I mean, actually, we do agree on who's to blame. The other guy's to blame. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting time in uh, in our country's history. And we just did an episode with a Civil War historian reading U.S. Grant's memoir. And there were some things about the lead up to the Civil War that, you know, we're not even close to that level of polarization and factionalism that existed at that time. But there are some things that are very eerily similar. There are some things that are eerily similar, and there are also some things that are different that are troubling about where we are now. And let me give you one example. In 1860, when Abraham Lincoln was on the ballot, there were four other candidates. You know, one was Stephen Douglas, one was John Breckinridge. But the point that I'm moving towards is that imagine if John Breckinridge, who was the Southern Democrat on the ballot, and he did not win one northern state, though he won all the southern states. Imagine if when the vote came in, he and his followers said, wait a minute, there's vote fraud here. This is wrong. We are totally incorrect. And mobilized all the Democrats, north and south, or at least 49% of the Democrats, north and south, to believe what they were saying and to make demands that there be a recount and that John Breckinridge be installed as president now, as opposed to Lincoln, I mean, imagine what a mess that would have been. I mean, it was enough of a mess that we had a civil war and that in the time between Lincoln got voted in and the time he took office that March, several states beginning with South Carolina decided to succeed. But imagine if instead of succeeding, they had actually won and they needed to supplant Abraham Lincoln in the White House and move John Breckinridge in. 
that would have made the civil war that we had, which was the most devastating conflict in this country's history in terms of domestic deaths, which, which were over 600. If that other scenario happened, we would have had deaths in every state. There would have been battles in every state as people fought over who actually won the election. And, and that's one of the dangers we are in now. We have something similar to the civil war in terms of a, of a real conflict. And let me just point to another difference that sort of makes where we are now, at least in my view, a little bit scarier than we were then. I mean, back then in 1860, there was a very real and tangible issue that was at stake. And that issue that was at stake was whether or not there would be the expansion of slavery into the Western territories. Lincoln was very much opposed to that, as were most of the other candidates, with the exception of John Breckinridge. At this point, there's nothing that's quite that tangible at stake. It's more of a feeling. A lot of the motivation behind our current politics is this sense that the United States is changing in some awful way. And that part of that change is that more brown people, more black people, more unchristian people are rising to dominance. And if you just think back to 2016, when Donald Trump came down the escalator in Trump Tower and made an anti-Mexican speech where he talked about Mexicans being rapists and murderers and pillagers and all of the other stuff, even if you accept that it is true that brown people are evil and that black people are deficient and that Muslim people are undesirable, what do you do about it? It's not, it's not like some policy you can just say, take all those people and move them out of the country. Whereas Civil War, there was something concrete at stake, which could easily be resolved. They could make the decision to either allow slavery in the Western states or not. And so because it is so nefarious, one, it's not clear how you deal with that complaint other than to use it as a way to mobilize people who are afraid of that and how you defuse it. Right. To mobilize them to do what? I mean, to just do violence? To what end? This is the thing I can't right. wrap my head around. And Barbara Walter does address this in a terrifying chapter of what a civil war would look like, which is basically just a lot of terrorism and nobody's even sure who's to blame for any of it. I have relatives who are very conservative who have told me with a straight face that they think that Antifa was involved in the January 6th riot. Sure. You know, I'm like, who do you think? You think they went out and bought a bunch of flags and got pickup trucks and, you know, like went to the store and got all that like tactical gear just to fool you? And I'm actually glad you mentioned that because the, the other thing that really makes us different now is that misinformation has become an art and social media has become a reality. And there was nothing comparable to that in past times, you know, and, and so that's one of the reasons I'm worried. It's one of the reasons why I think a lot of thoughtful people are worried and one of the reasons why Barbara Walters is obviously worried. And even in her scenario that you referred to where there is this civil war here, what she acknowledges is that we're not likely to have a kind of shooting war we had in the 1860s. There's not going to be pitched battles. Yeah, it's not going to be, not going to be formal soldiers on either side fighting against one another. That's not what's going to happen here. If it does, and I pray and hope that it doesn't, and I'm sure you do too, but it's going to be more of a uh, insurgency. One of the, I think you talked about social media and she talks about that a lot, but the, the idea of an ethnic entrepreneur, which is, I think we can safely say what Donald Trump, Tucker Carlson, all these sort of figure, uh, certainly Stephen Miller, what we can say that they are is people who use this idea of a 
group's grievance for personal gain. Oh, absolutely. Sure. You know, and I do believe, I think Stephen Miller is a perfect example of, I really think that he believes all the things that he says, but I know that he says them loudly because he knows he can make money off of it. Donald Trump, I have no idea. And I don't think any reasonable person could claim to have an idea of what he believes, but I think he does know what riles up his base and he knows that a riled up base makes donations. Oh yeah. But I don't think he understands what to do with that energy. Well, it gives him personal power, but I mean, yeah. but, but I mean Stephen Miller was behind a, a new ad that's come out recently basically talking about how white people are losing power and how all these policies are are now in place that take power away from white people and presumably gives it to someone else. And if you recall, and I'm sure you do, before Donald Trump even declared for the presidency, he made a name for himself suggesting that Barack Obama was a citizen of Kenya and therefore not entitled to be president of the United States. So yes, I mean, he's trafficking. And even before that, yeah, he, he made a name for himself when he took out an ad against the Chicago Central Park. Yeah, the Central Park Five, right? Right. Yeah, I feel like that might have been the first moment where he realized he could get some traction by expressing his racist views publicly. I think that's true. And he could get some popularity behind him. And, and then he, and he certainly had that sense verified, rewarded uh, when he got a whole lot of attention for this nonsense that he was prattling about Barack Obama. And I think there was a direct line from that to him realizing, you know, these noxious words have power. And there are a lot of people who will rally behind me if I say things like this. And that led directly, I think, to his presidency. Yeah. I think so. The conservatives, we do have conservatives who listen to this show. And, uh, and I know that because some of them are my family members and some of them send me emails. I'm going to try to express their viewpoint and okay. we'll just let you re respond to it. And we're going to talk a lot more about this because I mean, Ellis Coast wrote an entire book called Race and Reckoning. So we're going to get deep into that. But they're, I think, going to think that we're a little bit dunking on Donald Trump. And, you know, in America, and this is a view I've expressed on the podcast before, racism does not exist according to the law. Okay. Now, obviously, you know, I know anybody who is, has ever lived anywhere outside of, you know, a small town where they know everybody by name knows that racism does exist in practice. But I think the position is that like, well, we can't legislate what's in people's hearts. So the best we can do is make racism not exist on paper. I don't know what we can do beyond that. I think that Americans by nature are optimists and that Americans by nature tend to see the good side of other people, or, or at least other people that they like. And I think uh, largely for that reason, in this society, we have always downplayed the impact of racism because so many people we respect are benefiting from it. And if we acknowledge that those people have benefited from it, and then we acknowledge that there's either something wrong with the system or wrong with them. And we don't want to acknowledge either one of those things. I mean, Andrew Johnson, who was the vice president for Abraham Lincoln who succeeded him, vetoed the Civil Rights Act that was passed during his term in office in the 1860s because he decided and declared in his veto message that this Civil Rights Act, which was trying to basically insulate the people who have been slaves until a few years earlier, insulate them from outright discrimination, bigotry, and prejudice. He said this was giving rights to Black people that even white people didn't have. I mean. That's no different than the argument now. The reason it's useful to look back is because is no one with any sense can say 
wait a minute, someone who's who's just arrived out of slavery, who's by law has not been allowed to accumulate any wealth or any possessions, who by law cannot do many things that white people are allowed to do. No one can argue with a straight face that the way to remedy that is to pretend that none of that exists. (laughs) And that if you pass a law which says you can't explicitly order black people to do things, which you can't order white people to do things, then you are discriminated against white people. And it's not that the people like Andrew Johnson who believed that were crazy. It's that they had a deeply held belief that they were fair and that their country had been fair and that things that were happening were fair. And so therefore there was no need to address anything because once you pass the amendment abolishing slavery, you had taken care of everything that needed to be taken care of. And there was no need for any additional law beyond that. And so I, I think that's where that comes from. It it's comes from the sense that, well, my grandfather, yeah, he may have owned slaves, but he was a, a good slave owner and he gave his people all kinds of rights and privileges and would never have done anything to harm them. Huh. <laughs> and then sort of ends up getting us where we are as a society. Jamaica Kincaid uh, has a great I'm, I'm not going to be able to quote it directly, but we talked about this in the episode I did with Adwige Dantekat talking about Jamaica Kincaid's book. And basically what she says is that slavery basically destroys the soul of everyone involved, whether you're an enslaved person or an owner. Like there's no such thing as a good slave owner. There's no such thing as a happy slave. It destroys everybody's soul. I think that's absolutely right. And it's what, you know, people call it America's original sin, but it was certainly present at the inception. You know, and it made a lie of the Declaration of Independence and it made a lie of the Constitution. And we've been trying to balance something that's very difficult to balance, which is one, we treated a whole group of people, well, lots of groups of people who want to get into that, but we're going to get into that later. We treated a, a whole group of people very differently than we treated whites. But at the same time, we said everybody was equal. How do you square that circle? It's no easy way to do that other than to rationalize the behavior or to convince yourself that the group of people who you decided should not be treated as human beings were not really people. Well, I think that the argument to how do you make that situation better where you have some people who are enslaved or some people who are treated poorly is to strive for equality of opportunity. I mean, I think that Lyndon Johnson had the perfect answer for that, you know, 60 some years ago when he basically said, look, you can't take two people and have them do a race and put one 20 yards behind the other and say, okay, now get ready, run, and say that they have equal opportunity. Yeah, you, you can't take two people and give one a 100-pound weight to carry and, and another one nothing to carry and say, okay, now run, and say that's equal opportunity. Yes, you're letting them both run, but one is carrying the burden of history and the other is not. And what we have been reluctant to acknowledge as Americans is the burden of history. And that's part of the rationale and effect behind this movement in certain states, most of them in the South, as far as I know, but in certain states, to abolish the teaching of history about slavery and about racial discontent under the guise that that's teaching hatred of white people, which is Hmm. ridiculous. Um, to tell people, you know, the truth of what happened is not to teach hatred of any group. It's just to say that there were certain behaviors in the past that can be useful in understanding something about the present. I think this is an interesting and subtle view that educated 
and intelligent people like yourself hold that you can separate the actions of someone from an emotional reaction to them. And I agree with you. And I, you know, I mean, I listen to Wagner sometimes. I also like Michael Jackson. I'm aware that they did monstrous things, but I don't carry that into a study of their music the same way that I can now, I think, read about World War II and read about these atrocities and read about what Nazis did and not hate Nazis as much as understand like what happened historically. But it's really hard to think about anything involving Nazis or slave owners and not hate them. It's a very hard position to hold. I think that's true. But I also think it's true that even if you hate the Nazis, you don't necessarily hate the descendants of the Nazis. And that's the problem with that point of view and saying you can't teach about history because it's going to lead people to hate people. I spent quite a bit of time in Rwanda at one point. I did the 15th anniversary of Rwanda after the genocide and several other stories from there. And, and in the process, sat down and talked to several perpetrators, who people who had uh, been involved in the slaughter of the uh, Tutsis. And they all were decent people, really. Hmm. But they were following a policy that was indecent for what they thought were good reasons. And when I asked one guy who had been you know, convicted and he was in prison, when I was talking to him. He had killed his neighbors. And I said, well, why did you do that? And he said, because I thought I was doing what the government wanted me to do. I thought I was doing something good. And it's always a problem separating people from the acts that they do or acts that they validate and perpetrate, you know, but I think that's what we need to do if we're going to understand how society works. To separate people's actions from how they rationalize their actions. I mean, the scary thing about Rwanda was that these were ordinary people, some who were actually friends before the conflict. And the government, the Hutu government was basically broadcasting, you know, telling uh, the list of the Hutus that the uh, the Tutsis were the enemies, that the Tutsis were cockroaches, that the Tutsis were all of these things. And that got absorbed and motivated the population into doing what it did, which was just to massacre their neighbors in many cases. This is a perfect example to talk about. I think maybe one of the most important points in the book is the difference between polarization and factionalism. So right. Can you explain just the Hutus and Tutsis and who they were and how they came to hate each other? I mean, they were basically the same people, but they were two tribes. They had tribal disputes going back even before the time when when Belgium took over the country. But when Belgium colonized the country, it aggravated the differences. It elevated the Tutsis who were a minority. It it elevated them to position of leadership as a way of social control. And so there was a simmering discontent already of the Hutus toward the Tutsis. And then when and after the apparent assassination of the president, that fueled a uh, internal conflict because the government was encouraging Hutus to take up arms against the Tutsis. They did so, you know, and finally, you know, the, the Tutsis were liberated by the current president of the country. You know, but it led to just untold slaughter, you know, in that country because people who had been brothers and sisters in essence, were all of a sudden divided into political factions organized along the lines of ethnicity. Yeah, the same way that Democrats and Republicans were maybe 20 years ago, 30 years ago, very closely aligned on most issues and a little bit polarized on some issues. But today, uh, you know, you can see if you if you look on social media, you see posts about how, you know, Democrats eat babies and conservatives want to, you know, encourage rape. I mean, neither of these things are true. Well, some of the rationalizations that you see in the aftermath 
of the attack on Paul Pelosi, where people are downplaying it because he was an evil person. He was involved in some kind of supposed sex cult or some nonsense like that. Everyone in my sex cult is really nice. <laughs> well, mine too, but yeah, <laughs> apparently, apparently, his, apparently his was different, you know, but, you know, people demonize others and that makes it easier to factionalize. It makes it easier to factionalize into Republicans that hate Democrats and Democrats that hate Republicans. If in fact, you can argue that Democrats are cannibalizing their children or, or, or engaging in mass pedophilia and other sort of stuff that makes no sense. But these things don't have to make sense. They get repeated enough and loudly enough. There are a certain number of people who either believe them or think that there's something to it, which allows them to see the other group of people as a group of humans who are less worthy than they are. Man, my father-in-law is pretty conservative. Hi, Todd. How you doing? He, I know he listens to the show. And one of the things that we have discovered in arguing with each other mercilessly for the last half a decade is that when we drill past the rhetoric, we basically agree on most things or like the disagreement is so slight that a compromise would be easy. Sure. And the way that this gets used politically, you know, talking about today, I mean, the Republican Party is an interesting coalition. I mean, it's a coalition of basically the industrialist class, you know, and wealthy people who profit from their policies as regards to taxes and regulation and sort of working class whites who don't profit at all from their policies, but who are allowed to align themselves with a rich industrialist. And that's been a formula that has been in play, you know, since the time of slavery, where you have, you know, white Southerners who made common cause with the plantation owners because they were all white. Whether or not what they were fighting for was in the economic interests of the poor white Southerners who didn't even own slaves and, and probably would have done much better if there was no slavery to begin with. And I think it's an interesting point um, and an excellent segue into next week's episode that those people who were white Southerners and who were a coalition for slavery were the Democrats. At that time, yes. At that time. And the Republicans were the party of Lincoln and the party that you know, ultimately ended up finding themselves on the right side and the winning side of the Civil War. And in your book, Race and Reckoning, you talk about why that was and how that changed over the last 150 years. So next week, we're going to come back with Ellis Coase, and we're going to talk about his book, Race and Reckoning. So see you next week. Thank you for listening to Book Society. Our show is produced by me, Lucas Cantor Santiago. This episode was edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. The episode you just heard was brought to you by the Miami Book Fair. The Miami Book Fair 2022 has passed, but the Miami Book Fair 2023 is coming up in November of 2023. Javier Zamora, Ben Matlin, Jesse Hempel, David Hoffman, Robert Sutton, Mike Imperioli, Jake Ward. These are just a few of the hundreds of authors from around the world gathering together in downtown Miami. From Sunday, November 13th to Sunday, November 20th, please visit Miami Book Fair for more information. Follow at Miami Book Fair or hashtag Miami Book Fair 2022. Ellis, your publicist didn't tell you that this is the official Boogaloo Boys podcast? Oh, wow. I changed my orientations. Sorry about that. No, I also <laughs> hope that there is not a civil war ever in my lifetime or my children or grandchildren's lifetime.